Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 423rd show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Jonathan Schultz, Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at George Mason University, and we're going to be talking about God and Manon. Medieval Catholicism nudges Europe toward democracy and development. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we're going to be talking about God and Manon, Medieval Catholicism nudges Europe toward democracy and development with Dr. Jonathan Schultz, Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at George Mason University. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you very much. It's great to be on the show. All right. um, Let's start off with a, a little background information for our listeners. Tell us a little bit about the Catholic Church's place in the Middle Ages. Well, the Catholic Church was the big institution. It had the monopoly on religion. It was the biggest landholder. And of course, it wasn't always like this. It started as a small sect. It started um, as a small sect in, in what is now Israel. And uh, over time, it became one of the biggest or the biggest religion in the world. And uh, in, in the medieval times, it was just a deep, big player. Um, both on the political scene and, of course, uh, when it comes to religion. All right. So how then does the Catholic Church um, help sort of organize the uh, political and the economic landscape um, of, let's say, the late Middle Ages? So um, in a sense, what I look at in my research is how the Catholic Church changed the social structure in Europe. And often people focus as the, uh, on the Catholic Church as the institution, as a powerful institution. But you see already in the late medieval times and later that their power starts to erode. Then in, you get the Reformation later on. And the thing that I'm mostly interested in is how the Catholic Church changed social structure. So if you look at the map of Europe, um, let's say in late antiquity, you'll see that uh, what is now Germany, um, there, all these maps are gray. There's just a gray area, and then you have some names of tribes. So it was a tribal, clan-based society. You have that um, um, all, in all of uh, northeastern Europe. You have that also in, in Ireland and many other parts. And the big question is, how did it change? How, why do we get this uh, rise of feudalism? Why do we get this rise of commune cities? Suddenly, the whole landscape in Europe changes, and this, this starts in late antiquity and, and up to the late medieval times. You get urbanization. Suddenly, urban centers are growing. And you have to imagine um, that urban centers are actually, from a biological perspective, not the ideal habitat of, of people. They are hordes of disease, pathogen stress, and so on. So the, the, the big question is, how did it change, and what did the Catholic Church contribute to this change? Okay, so let's kind of follow that, um, because uh, I'm, I'm very much interested in um, that concept of, of how do we take religious um, 
concepts and integrate them into societies to to bring about change. Um, certainly, a lot of the uh, the tribal societies that that go into the the Roman Empire at its fall are very uh, individualistic. They're small. Um, small uh, family units or extended family units. Uh, but religiously, there's a lot of emphasis on individuality, hero sort of behavior or, or um, individual associations between um, a nobleman and his knight or whatever. Um, how does the Catholic Church work over time to kind of change that very individualistic mindset to something that is a little bit more uh, communal or cooperative? That's a very good question. And the important thing is that you can interpret individualism in very different ways. And uh, in a way, um, these tribal societies, they formed those small clusters, like you said. They were tribes, they were clans. And one thing that characterizes those societies often is ancestral gods, and these ancestral gods have these mystical ancestors, and they derive um, their religion from this mystical ancestor. And and this is normally traced through uh, the father's side or the mother's side of the family. So here again, you have this, this very um, strong um, being enmeshed into a family system, into a lineage system, so you consider only um, people on your father's side as being part of your family. And on the outside, outside, it might seem that then you have these more independent units. But of course, within these units, within these family units, within these clan and, and extended family units, persons are very much tied to into loyalty demands. It's basically a, a very tight net of obligations and, and demands. So... Uh, from this perspective, often then people are not very individualistic. And um, the Catholic Church wanted to create this kingdom of heaven, the city of God. And uh, the famous book is by St. Augustine, a contemporary of St. Ambrose, who wrote this book, the, the City of God Against the Pagans. And there he was going against those uh, uh, um, pagan family traditions, so, for example, cousin marriage is very common in, in many places around the world, and it probably also was common um, among Germanic tribes. And he goes against that by saying, well, if you marry outside the kin group, this enlarges the range of social relations. So now you're not constrained to marry someone within your kin group. And this then should bind social life more effectively by involving a greater number of people in them. So he really had this idea that you also mentioned, um, if you get people to marry outside their clan, their lineages, then you get more cooperation, you get this um, community of God or this, this city of God. All right. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org.
Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Jonathan Schultz, Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at George Mason University, and we're talking about God and Manon, medieval Catholicism nudging Europe towards democracy and development. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Ed, why don't you start us off? Um, thanks, Jay. Um, I guess to start off with, my observation is that the Catholic Church is one of the least democratic institutions I can think of. Um, but uh, can you talk about um, whether there was an influence um, because of, as, as I understand older religions, Christianity, Christian God um, put down a moral code that was to be followed, and what little I know of pagan gods, they were worshipped, but they didn't, the, the, uh, they didn't proscribe a particular code of behavior. So was there a transition from you know, the expected norms of behavior um, which was internal to the clans um, that moved out into this um, spiritual realm, if you will, in the Catholic Church? Oh, I certainly think that there was this element as well. And um, the Christian God is a moralizing God. It's also a punishing God. So it, it um, incentivizes good behavior and it, it punishes bad behavior. Um, more generally, this is something that Christianity has in common with many other religions, with the other Abrahamic religions. So Muhammad is a punishing God. He punishes, punishes immoral behavior. But it's also, you find this in Hinduism, with karma, if someone is not behaving according to a moral code, then he might be uh, experiencing uh, bad karma. So he's in some form punished. And uh, so anthropologists explain the emergence of these um, moralizing gods and punishing gods for the advantages that they bring for cooperation among humans. So cooperation normally is explained by uh, people observing each other, so if someone is not cooperating, then this person is punished. But of course, there's many uh, instances where humans are not observed, where others don't see um, uh, whether someone is cooperating or whether someone is shirking. But of course, if you strongly believe in a God who is punishing and who sees everything, then you might also be uh, more honest and more cooperative in situation where you can be sure you wouldn't be caught by anyone else. Okay, Terry. Um, yes, I'd like to talk a little bit more about kinship intensity and where you see that in the world today and where you do not see that in the world today. Um, the reason I ask is because um, about a decade ago when I went to China, one of the questions we were asked to explore was the idea of what was the smallest unit. And in America, the smallest unit would be considered the individual, while in China, it's the family. Can you talk about that, please? That's a very good point. So across the world, what constitutes a family or what constitutes uh, your in-group um, varies quite a bit. And, um, and you, you made the example of China, and historically China has been also um, characterized by a strong clan-based society. Clans means that you only trace your ancestry through one side of the family, and the implication of this is that um, 
you create groups which are not overlapping. So you and all your male um, relatives belong to uh, uh, relatives. They belong to one family, and all on your mother's side, they belong to a different group. They're not part of your family. So this creates a very um, strong structure in the society. So now there's many other characteristics of high kinship intensity. For example, polygyny is a characteristic, characteristic that one man marries many wives. Then you have extended families. This is whether um, more than one nuclear family lives under one roof and, and so forth. And another indicator is uh, cousin marriage. And if you look at maps of cousin marriages around the world, this is very common in many societies. For example, in Saudi Arabia or in um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, marriages between first and second cousin make up more than 50% or around 50% of all marriages. So there's a huge variation. Okay. Um, Jonathan, I'm, I'm curious then, talking about democracy and development, I want to focus, I guess, first on development. Um, how does the Catholic Church nudge Europe toward more development? Is it more in terms of encouraging cooperation and, and thinking more communally? Uh, is it actively doing things to, um, to, to encourage uh, more economic uh, experimentation? Uh, is this part of the... Um, the kind of uh, empire building that we see in the uh, 1500s. Um, wh how does the church impact development? Yeah, I like this, this question a lot. So there's different ways to think about this. And earlier you mentioned that church is not a very democratic institution. And that's probably true from our perspective today. But if you think of the church as an institution where priests are not allowed to have legitimate offspring, they're not allowed to marry, and then the transition of power in the church has some form of democratic elements. So there must be a, often a consensual um, a vote who's, who's transitioning. So the church as an institution has elements of democracy. But the main point I want to make is that I don't think that the church had a plan to make Europe more democratic or had a plan to to nudge them towards economic prosperity. I think this was more a coincidence. So the church was driven by a self-interest to missionize all those pagan societies. And of course, if you get rid of clans and these ancestors, you also get rid of ancestral gods. And I think that the Catholic Church then rather fell victim to its own success. People became more cooperative. They became also more individualistic. So now you're, you're, um, you only need to care about the nuclear family. So at the global level, they become more cooperative, but at the local level, they become more individualistic. And this is all beneficial to the formation of these urban centers. So now you have associations which are not based on the families. Universities are not based on the family, and they start emerging. They're based on shared interests. You have communal towns. These are cities which are self-governed by people who share common interests and not uh, kin. So all this becomes possible because the church destroyed with their st uh, strict incest regulation those uh, clans and, and lineages in Europe. But once this is underway, it's just the, the ball keeps rolling and the church doesn't have much of an influence. And the reason why I think the church 
uh, fell victim to its own successes that this then finally um, ends with the Reformation where people want a more individualistic religion than the Catholic one, which is very central. So um, you have the Reformation where people become Protestant, which is more individualistic, which is more geared towards economic prosperity and uh, is better fitting with this psychology. Okay. Yeah, um, Professor, um, where does the Magna Carta fit into all this? So when you, um, so the Magna Carta is a document which is already reflects a different structure in, in the society. So it is not signed by powerful clans and lineages. So in many, many parts of the world, you still have these powerful clans and lineages. And if, if you look at Saudi Arabia, it is uh, um, ruled by, by a clan or, or by an emperor. So when you have the Magna Carta, it already reflects this change in the social structure. So now you have different groups of people who are keep competing for power. You have, um, you have a merchant class which emerged, which is competing for power. You have uh, cities which are starting to compete for power. And uh, uh, the king in England has to um, trade political sovereignty with with cities in order to to be able to extract taxes. So suddenly you have a very different structure. You have different um, stratification of society, and then these political groups, which are no longer based on kin networks, start um, uh, negotiating and bargaining with each other. And I think the Magna Carta is one example of this bargaining. Okay, Terry. Yes, uh, Dr. Schultz, would you agree with the statement that religion was the very heart of culture? And what would be that today in our society? So it's, it's really, I find it really hard to define what culture is. And, and I'm not sure whether I would agree with the statement that religion is the core of culture. It certainly is a big a part or big dimension of culture. So you could think of culture more generally about information, about um, traditions, norms, also religion, which is handed down over generations. And in, in, um, in the, and the question is, why do people follow culture and what dimensions of culture is very important? And one explanation for culture is that it evolves over many, many centuries so that culture is often smarter than individual people. And let me give you an example. If you, um, if you think about food taboos, so often you have in, in many um, societies, you have food taboos, for example, on the Fijis, there's a taboo for pregnant women to eat certain kinds of fish. And if you ask the women, so why are you not allowed to eat this fish, they will ask you, I don't know, it's just our tradition and it's not good and maybe some some punishment from some gods will ensue if we do. But now with modern methods, we know that this kind of fish is poisonous for the, uh, the unborn and for this reason it's not good to eat this. So in, in this sense, culture is accumulated knowledge over many, many generations, which is uh, smarter than the individual. And um, in this sense, you can also think about what the Catholic Church did by prohibiting, prohibiting cousin marriage. It might have just been coincidence, but this random thought of let's forbid uh, incestuous marriages then became extremely successful. And the Church might have not had a good idea of 
we want to forbid these incestuous marriage or what they termed incestuous marriages um, uh, to enhance growth in, in Europe. Jonathan, as we're talking, the, the event that really jumps out at me would be the Crusades as an example of what you're talking about here. Uh, the Crusades are motivated, at least in part, uh, by political and religious associ- uh, ideas. And yet it, you know, it has this tremendous economic and cultural um, sort of byproduct as, as contact with the East suddenly floods Europe with uh, information from classical times, with access to, um, to trade routes and exotic goods and those kinds of things. Um, so can we talk a little bit about the, you know, the Crusades as an example of sort of this unintentional developmental catalyst? Well, I absolutely agree. I think so that Crusades were, were I mean, they did uh, tremendous atrocities and, um, in Israel, but at the same, or in, in Jerusalem. But at the same time, it's exactly an example of this, this change. So suddenly you have people across many different, you, you can say cultures with many different, at, at least linguistic backgrounds, but who shared one religion, all starting... Um, uh, well, to go on a crusade, and that's that's an, an example of how you suddenly get these these large-scale cooperation. And like I said, cooperation doesn't need to be always positive. You get this large-scale cooperation where all over Europe people get together to go uh, to Jerusalem and and free uh, and 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 occupy or free uh, or from their perspective free Jerusalem. And and of course then. Once, once you establish those routes, you get a flow of information, you get new knowledge. And that's also a very important thing more generally if you li- think about social structure. If you ha- have clans and lineages, you really have this closed social structure where information is not easy to flow. But now if you have the nuclear family who also happen to marry people who are quite distant, where you suddenly get an apprentice, sh- uh, apprentice sh- uh, system in Europe where people walk from one city to the next, suddenly you get this flow of information and flow of information then is the catalyst for for innovation and for new technologies. All right. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, um, Jonathan, why do you think knowing about the impact of medieval Catholicism on the modern world is relevant in today? Well, I, I think it's really... Understanding this history really is the foundation to understand why some countries are rich today and why others are poor. This change in the social structure and the developments which uh, subsequently ensued is is really at the heart of this um, big question in the social sciences, why are some countries rich and others are poor? I'm I'm going to kind of piggyback on that. I also think this is relevant in in a more general sense because I think we tend and you hit on this a little earlier. Um I think we tend to think simplistically. We tend to think that politics is politics, religion is religion, economics is economics and we don't think about the fact that those things intersect. They they blend with each other and they, they're constantly influencing each other. And here's an example of an institution that we tend to think of as purely a religious one in our modern world, and yet it has all of these other impacts that are taking place. 
Um, so, so I think if, if for no other reason, just to give us a more nuanced or a more complex sense of the world we live in and, and how we got here is, is very relevant as well. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 423rd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme. and was written and performed by Mark Sapital. My name is Jay Swords. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Jonathan Schultz, Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at George Mason University. We've been talking about God and Manon medieval Catholicism nudging Europe towards democracy and development. Our history buffs for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember, Historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.